0: Hey, deserving listeners. Today's episode is about boundaries in therapy and when boundaries can be helpful in therapy and when boundary crossings can be bad for both the therapist and the client. I'm going to be talking in this episode for an hour or actually, I think two and a half hours. I, I already recorded the interview with Liz. She went through a situation with a therapist years ago and it to me presents an excellent crucible upon which we can analyze the reasons why therapists need to have boundaries with their clients. And I think this is important for a number of reasons. One, obviously there are a lot of therapists listening to this podcast. About half of our listeners are therapists. And there's a lot of nuances to boundaries. Some people have a style where they have very rigid boundaries with their clients. Some therapists have a style of therapy that is very loose-boundaried with their clients. And at the ends of the spectrum, it can become problematic, but there's a pretty broad range of what's accepted and what's considered the standard of care and what's considered ethical, meaning that some therapists might share personal details with their clients while others won't. Some therapists allow allow clients to text them off hours, and some therapists don't. I tend to be on the side of the spectrum that has a lot of boundaries with my clients. Not that I'm not warm, not that I'm not caring, not that I'm not empathetic, but that I, I just – it's just my style. I, d- I developed it long ago and I feel comfortable in it. There's pros and cons to my style, but I understand that and this is where I want to uh, operate and this is how I disclose to my clients You know, when I start therapy with them. Anyway, so there's a lot of variants in there. And so this case example that I'm that we're going to talk about for two and a half hours, I think provides a lot of different angles for you clinicians out there to not only understand the reasons as to why we have boundaries, because it's squishy. The, the thing is, is uh, there's one of the most frustrating things about this job for me and many of my colleagues is that there aren't Defined rules for a lot of the things that we do as therapists, even when it comes to ethical codes, they are principles, they're codes, they're not necessarily rules. Just take, for example, the idea of accepting gifts from your clients. Sometimes it's considered an ethical violation to accept a gift from a client. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes you could even consider it an ethical violation to not accept a gift from a client. So what are we supposed to do as clinicians? How are we supposed to train people about these things? You know, therapists come to me all the time. They're like, I heard, you know, I'm supposed to do this. And I heard, you know, the rules are this. And I'm like, well, you know, it depends. I'm always saying, well, it depends. And what it depends on are a lot of factors that you have to know as you head into the ethical decision-making process, you have to know all the different possibilities and all the different consensus thinking around that particular ethical topic, boundaries being one of those ethical topics. And so I think this episode provides a, a case example upon which we can explore the nuances of ethical decision-making. The other reason why I think this episode is going to be really great for you listeners is for a lot of you, your clients. A lot of you are seeing therapists. Some of you, many of you therapists are seeing therapists. I hope all you therapists are seeing therapists. And there are times where a lot of you will contact me and say that you wish you could be closer to your therapist. You wish that the boundaries weren't quite as rigid. Or you will email me and talk about how your therapist has really loose boundaries with you in that your therapist talks with you outside of therapy or self discloses a lot or even more extreme cases where the therapist might even disclose that they are sexually attracted to you or something again, these are uh, gray areas upon which we can analyze what we're supposed to do and what's best for the client and it's not an easy thing to figure out and so as as a client. It's important to know what your rights are. It's important to know what good therapy is, because sometimes you as the client might have an impulse to do something in therapy. You might ask your therapist to do something that is actually not helpful to you, even though it feels like it's gonna be helpful to you. Like when you ask, you know, maybe given your relational traumas, you have this impulse that you wanna be friends with your therapist, and you wanna hang out with your therapist outside of the session. This is a very common impulse. And what I end up telling a lot of people who will consult with me is I'll say, I I get why you have this impulse. And I know that it feels like it's going to be a good thing. But I'm here to tell you 99 times out of 100, it will go badly for you. And that last 1% of the time, it's probably just like a wash. It's rare that those kinds of boundary violations and boundary crossings are going to be beneficial in the long run. And this case example, where I talk with Liz for two and a half hours, provides a lot of data on that. Uh, Liz had a therapist who she was very close to and really loved it. The therapist allowed her to text her five times a day, and they would go back and forth. And Liz was very grateful that her therapist was willing to cross those boundaries, and, and it was really helpful to her. But in the end, it turned out to be detrimental, harmful to the client, a bit of a disaster where uh, Liz is considering complaining about the therapist and claiming that the therapist was unethical. So I think that it's an important case for all of us to hear. And as I was doing this interview with Liz, I started to learn something because I have fairly... Uh, standard boundaries with my clients. And I've always looked at people who have loose boundaries as through kind of a naive lens in that if it's past a certain point, then I will point out, look, you are putting your client at risk a a great deal. And then there are obvious examples like having sex with your client where it's like 100% of the time a bad idea and traumatic and harmful and illegal and unethical. But like when I would come across a colleague who would self-disclose a lot, or would be the sort of warm person in their life, where it almost feels like they're an uncle or an aunt or a friend or something, and I'd be like, "Okay, I'm not like that. I don't have and I and if I, and none of my supervisees are like that because I don't let them be like that. I think it's not a in order to do that kind of loose boundary therapy, you have to be, you have to know what you're doing, and you can't. And if you're just starting out as a therapist, it's it's not recommended, and I wouldn't allow any novice therapist to do that kind of work because really, there's no point. You can you can be warm and caring without breaking those boundaries. Um, I certainly feel like I can. So, I've always looked at it like, well, you know, I, I have colleagues that do that, and i I think that they're probably doing a great job. I mean, their their clients really seem to love them. Uh, they people because these kinds of therapists who have loose boundaries tend to be worshipped quite a bit because. They're so warm and they're so available that people really fall in love with them. I have colleagues, fellow professors that are like this with their students. They have very loose boundaries with their, ther- with their students and thus gain that same admiration from people. And I've always looked at that like with a bit of admiration, like, well, geez, God bless you for willing to sacrifice your free time and your life and your, your energy and your soul to benefit all those people like, you know, that what a wonderful uh, sort of love that you're giving the world. And maybe that's true. But upon hearing this story from Liz, this uh, two and a half hour story, at the very end, I finally get to this place where I see really what that behavior is like. Because again, I I haven't experienced it really from either end. So I I guess I only knew this sort of intellectually. But hearing Liz talk about this, this loose boundary style of therapy, And how uh, if things go a little bit wrong, they can go really wrong. Uh, It can switch from, you know, what a wonderful relationship I have with my therapist to suddenly having a lot of pain and a lot of hurt and a lot of resentment and a lot of ongoing grief and a lot of ongoing pain. And so uh, let's listen to that. Uh, But first, let's introduce the podcast. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host. Dr. Kirk Hanna, I'm a therapist and a professor. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. Liz wanted it to be just for patrons of the podcast because she wants to limit the availability uh, of the, the information because she you know, talks you know, about herself a lot. She doesn't want that to be on the general internet. So this episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you, this episode is going gonna, gonna to end uh, pretty soon unless you're a patron. If you're a patron, then you get to listen to all two and a half hours of this. So if, you want, if you're not a patron yet and you want to hear this episode and hundreds of other patron-only episodes, you have to go to patreon.com, become a patron, and you will get instructions on how to listen to this episode. If you have trouble accessing this episode or any other premium episode, email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com or go to our website and contact me through there at psychologyinseattle.com, and I will let you know how to access all the episodes. Never, ever suffer in silence. Make sure you let me know if anything is going wrong, and I'm here to help. Okay, so let's go to that interview with Liz. So we have Elizabeth on the podcast today, and she wants to tell you listeners about a bad therapy experience that she had. Welcome to the podcast, Elizabeth.
1: Hi, Kirk. Thanks for having me.
0: So tell us your story.
1: It is, to me, it is a very complicated story, but I'll start uh, by saying about, it was five years ago, I had been married and it was, in my experience, uh, a pretty happy marriage uh, for seven years, but it plunged into a crisis um, between my then husband and and me. And I actually, it all starts with I had been close friends with a therapist at the time, and she was quite involved in my life. And we talked a lot and she had, um, you know, she suggested with this issues, my husband and I were suddenly having that I, I see a therapist. Uh, and yet yeah, I thought, well, that, that does make sense. A marriage counselor, whatever. And she connected me to, I figured she, she knows uh, we live in a very small community and, you know, I, my friend would know what she was doing and she connected me to, Um, a therapist she knew Uh, and so my husband and I began to see this uh, marriage counselor or you know and I don't think she was specifically a marriage counselor I think she's a a therapist and you know also can do marriage counseling and um, I so we would go and I felt like the marriage counselor was very warm and supportive and because I Of the two of us, certainly, I talk much more and, you know, wanted to talk much more, wanted to explain, and I was also just very, very angry at the time about what was going on in my marriage. Um, And so I I did feel like this therapist was very attuned with me and very supportive. Um, I also just didn't know what to look out for that would be at all strange or what I would be getting myself set up for. So um, I just recall, you know, support is the key word. So I recall after a particularly fraught early session, this therapist um, texted me afterwards to to check in, like, are you okay? Liz just wanted to check that I didn't leave you in a bad place. Um, and at the time, I really appreciated that, you know, because um, it just felt so supportive and everything. Now it strikes me as odd that the therapist would reach out to see how I was doing. Later it would play out that you know, she wasn't available for me at what became really incredibly difficult times in that, that time of my life. But anyway, that's how it started. And she encouraged me to text her anytime, um, call her when I needed. But certainly there was a lot of texting and she would get back to me. It wasn't really clear when she would get back, but I'd sort of just wait desperately for her to respond. Usually it was within the same day. Um, And I was just in, and just to remind you, I I was just in agony um, at that point in my life. So her contact meant a lot to me. Um, And so that is how it kind of started. But... um, and I guess I'll go into a little bit about what was going on with my husband and me, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, so our crisis revolved around the fact that he had been unemployed and he was rather desperate and he had a, a job opportunity in another cu- part of the country. And I was against his taking it for a number of reasons. And he was going to accept the job and, and move. And he just begged me to forgive him and find some way to join him. So in two months time, he was going to move to a different, just leave me and move to a different part of the country. We had this huge rift in our marriage that we did not um, agree on. I was furious with him, even though, you know, I understood that he was probably depressed about his unemployment and, you know, we just, we needed, really needed to sort these things out. So, and so in two months time he would leave. So we would see this therapist and, and talk. And in the meantime, she was, um, you know she and i it was more like she she and I had the connection, and she was talking to me a lot about my life and a lot about my past um and i and then she you know my husband at the time and I wanted to remain married, and so a lot of the talk was about uh my um, forgiving him and that kind of thing and um being open to this move as furious as I was, and so um.
0: So, so, let me pause here yeah so you're in you're in couple therapy, and your uh husband is wanting to make this move and and you don't want him to, mm. and yeah. he it's a conflict, and yeah. you were getting the impression that the therapist or the therapist directly said such things that indicated that the therapist was kind of siding with the husband about this decision
1: I feel like she. I feel like, I don't know if you would call it siding, but she I was the one who had to be do the forgiveness and to, to make it work and to do this work, like to eventually, And so yeah, to 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 open myself to let go of my pride about what had happened, um, because he and I, and she would say, like, I see how much you two love each other, you have what most people don't have in the day-to-day, and we did, like he and I, we were very, I don't know, for lack of a better word of saying it, we were a very cute couple, like but there was some major stuff going on um, so yeah so that was the gist of of it like um, really encouraging me uh, to forgive him and to be prepared because I had the flexibility in my life to visit him where he was which would involve flying to where he was and really like being open-minded despite the fact that I was enraged about his decision.
0: Yeah, let me uh, drill down on this a little bit further. So when you were talking with the therapist, did you tell her that uh, you wanted, I mean, so there's two different categories of approaches that I can imagine someone in your position having. One is you go to therapy saying, well, he's going to move and I'm furious and I'm, I'm struggling with the emotions. Therapist helped me out with that. The other approach is, he wants to go to this other part of the country. I don't want him to go. And so I want to go to couples therapy to work this out because I, 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 it's not a foregone conclusion that he's going yet. I I want to actually convince him not to go. Uh, Which one was it for you?
1: Um, It started out as the convincing. Uh, I remember her saying specifically, Liz, he's going to go. You know that, right? You know, so it started off with my thinking I was going to convince him not to go and to just show just how this is not going to work out. And then it became this thing in which it was a balance. Like, uh, you know, I will just have to, if I want, if I love him so much and I want to stay married, I'm just going to accept this decision of his that is so unacceptable to me and so hurtful uh, to me. And I feel so abandoned and betrayed. And that's sort of that's what it turned into,
0: yeah, well, I could see how that would be um so so in the moment, did you feel disheartened by the shift in the focus in therapy, or was it helpful to have someone confront you on that?
1: It was helpful. It all felt she it felt tremendously helpful from her. It's more like as I was sort of mad at him more not than her, you know, like I felt this I felt. This tremendous connection and support from her, even though she was giving me that what seems like a hard message
0: okay, makes sense yeah, so then what happened?
1: so then I remember it was around the holidays, um, you know, and he would be moving in a couple of months' time. Um, she and I were in touch a lot. Uh, I have all the text messages still, and I quickly looked at them, but I just can't bear to look at them. I cringe at <laughs> like the level of emotion and my level of neediness at the time.
0: What do you, what do you mean? Like what, what kind of things were you texting her?
1: Um, well, just detailed updates about conversations I'd had with him and just the fact that I needed to get in touch with her so often. And um, I mean, I honestly can't, rem- I, I mean, I have it right on my phone, but I, I just I can't get to the point where I can look at it. Um and they were they were often very emotional at least in my interpretation from her as well and just again just reminding me of um you know the love uh that he and I had for each other and that kind of thing. Yeah, and just um I don't know they're just kind of like describing my fury I think at him and that sort of thing.
0: So you were texting her things like I'm I'm really upset at him that he's moving or that he left. I feel alone. Please tell me that you care about me. Those kinds of things.
1: Basically, I mean not saying that explicitly, but I think that was the message. Like wanting support and she yeah. was very supportive.
0: And it's cringe-worthy to you because why?
1: Because I just feel like I was so needy it was it just it feels now from my perspective like it wasn't a real relationship um and that i had just i guess it was all this transference i had um and i was in such a crisis and just needing her so badly and then the fact that she more or less in my opinion abandoned me after all of that um that's sort of why i cringe
0: because you were Trusting someone that later you realized you couldn't trust.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, and I don't even think she's a bad person, but I just, I don't think, she, I don't know. I don't know if she int- intended this at all. I'll get into that later, but...
0: Just to, just curious, how many texts per day or per week were you exchanging between you and your therapist? Kind
1: of depended. Um, so there would be... Five or so, maybe. But then, so one of the things that happened around five a week? No, five a day, I'd say three or five sometimes.
0: Evenings and weekends?
1: Yes. And then one time she texted me later, months later, when I um, told her, you know, I confronted her and said, you know, I really feel like, I said, I said, you know, my husband and I are getting, this is after she, like, I lost touch with her. And I said, just, I was being sarcastic. And I said, just in case you were curious, Uh, My husband and I are getting a divorce um, because she had been so invested, you know, thinking that, uh, and then she, then she just, she wrote me back this text about how much she cared, how deeply she cared for me and my husband. And she had written it at 10 o'clock at night, um, 10 or 11 o'clock. I think it's closer to 11 at night. And I didn't, I hadn't gone, I didn't receive it till the next morning. But the fact that she, the therapist was texting me almost in the middle of the night to tell me how much she cared about me. When I had gone through this total mind fuck of an experience you know with my husband, that just strikes me as uh strange
0: yeah, and so just a side note on the professionalism of this sort of thing it's fine or it's it's not an automatic uh, unethical act or bad treatment to text with your clients. It really just depends on what your treatment style is and what you're treating and informed consent. But generally speaking, for therapists to engage in frequent texting uh, evenings and weekends with, with clients obviously gives the impression that the therapist is available 24-7. And if again, if you're willing as a professional to sacrifice all of your free time for that service for people, then I guess that's your choice. I don't recommend that to therapists because you need to recharge so that you have capacity to actually help people when you actually are at work. Um, But if, you know, if that's what you're going to do, but you have to enter into it with informed consent and with competence, you have to tell people uh, this is my approach and, I will always be available 24-7. But what ends up happening is a lot of therapists, they dip into this sort of behavior of texting. And then at some point, they realize they don't want to do it anymore. They don't want to be 24-7 with that client. And they pull back and the therapist and the client is hurt by that naturally, or uh, at least confused as to what happened. How come all of a sudden, you know? I guess uh, an analogy would be, you're seeing your therapist once a week uh, for an hour. And then all of a sudden one day they just call and say, I'm only available once every two months. And you're like, what happened? I thought, I thought we were in this routine of seeing each other once a week. And now all of a sudden it's once every two months. I I don't understand. Especially if you have relational traumas that make it so that attachments are really scary to you as a client and to have someone pull away like that, even if you intellectually understand why, it can be very disruptive and even traumatic to people and you know, downright harmful to people. The other problem with being a 24-7 texter with clients is that what if another client finds out that uh, you're doing that for one client but not for them? Because I have a hard time believing that this therapist was 24-7 texting with all of her clients. I mean, I guess it's possible, but it, usually what I've seen is that therapists will provide this professional service for just some of their clients and that is also potentially unethical because if another client finds out that they're getting substandard service for the same price from the same clinician then there's an obvious um uh you know complaint potential there um so let me ask you elizabeth what was your sense of that as it was happening were you thinking oh this is normal for therapists to be available 24/7 what were you thinking
1: i thought at the time i thought it was normal and i tend to i tend to attract people in my life who are very devoted friends and so on and my my mother it's a whole other story but is a very nurturing person has her issues but is a very nurturing person who like is very there for me always has been and so to me it just felt normal and just expected like oh okay she's uh, this woman is uh available we have a connection yeah i didn't i did not see the the harm in it at the time yeah
0: i mean it wasn't harmful at the time it w- it was it was f- probably really helpful at the time actually
1: oh yeah and,
0: that, and that's what i'm saying it's not it's not Terrible to do this. It's just as a professional, you have to head into it with competence and with informed consent and with a long term plan. Was she available by text to your husband?
1: No, well, he was checked out and didn't care. He was like the opposite. Like he was out of touch with his emotions. I think he was kind of going to therapy because as a, a chore almost, like it was the right thing to do. He was so focused on his new career after, you know, mourning the things that had gone wrong in his professional life. I think he's just pretty checked out while well, I was totally tuned in and uh attuned with her.
0: So then so then what happened?
1: So then he um this is where I mean my it's a little I don't know the the exact dates or whatever but a couple of months after that he did he did actually move and I continued to be in touch with her. Oh yeah, but before that she had told me, like, first she, start, she had heard, was having her own crises. And the first one, I don't know how specific I want to get, but she had a death in her extended family. And she told me that. And that, you know, I think it was while she was texting me, she's like, I, um, I, may, you know, I am en route to wherever because someone died. And, and, you know, then I felt bad and I backed off. Um, and then she's back in touch again. Uh, I don't know, a week later and we were texting again. And then, um, and in the meantime, encouraging me to do the difficult thing to open my heart and to go to travel and to go stay with this husband, you know, you know, at that point, the husband was saying, he loved me and to please just forgive him. He had to do this, just, you know, this kind of thing. So I flew out there for days at a time. Um, I mean, the whole thing just sounds so ludicrous in, in hindsight, but at that point, so he had shut off. He had. After like begging me to to join him, you know, you know, I I would visit him and he was um just pretty shut off emotionally and just obsessed with his job. Um and she and I, she remained in touch and she remained, you know, encouraging me, reminding me of the love and that kind of thing. She was in touch by text. And then she then um that at that point her father uh was very ill and she would text me that. And but still say that she was available, like, but I knew that this thing was going on in her life. And my feelings at the time were first, I backed, I tried to, even though I was in agony, I I tried to back off a little, but I also like worried about her. I felt like I loved her, you know, like, um, I felt like I had to take care of her. I mean, I know this is my stuff, but that's how I felt with that information she had given. And it was also strange with the texting, you know, she was both this mysterious figure because she was a therapist who supposedly had boundaries but then not like not enough because she'd say oh you know i'm i'm going to be out of the country for a couple of days but i'll be you know so i'm like wondering like what's she doing like which country you know like that like just enough um detail it kind of just made me connect these dots that weren't able you know I couldn't really connect. And, and so anyway, when I knew she, I just, so then my, in the meantime, she said, she did set me up. It was never really explained that she and I were terminating or what was going on between us. Um, But she set me, she's like, Liz, you do need uh, support. So, you know, I will find you someone to see. And she, so I thought, okay. um,
0: So she is saying, you need more support than what I can give you, or she says you need an individual therapist, and I'm your couple therapist.
1: She didn't say it like that. She didn't explain that. She just said, "Liz, you need." She didn't really say it explicitly. She just said, "She said I will continue to be, you know, to talk to you." That was the message. But you know, you 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 need support for yourself um, at this time. She did say that, but she wasn't really making it clear, like what. And at the time, yeah.
0: Is it reasonable to think that? what she was thinking was i'm your couple therapist i'm you and your husband's therapist but i'm recognizing now that you need an individual therapist so I, i'm going to recommend that is do you think that's what she was thinking
1: i'm sure that's probably what she was thinking it wasn't really clear okay. to me to me it was like okay i mean i think i understood that but i also thought at the time my husband and i were still married and i was doing most of the work in that situation so you know And she was so available to me up into that point until, so I just, I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking. I was in such a crisis at the time.
0: So just backing up a little bit uh, and pointing out a few things. When therapists, and there are many out there like this, are uh, loose-lipped about their personal life with their clients, then for some clients, it doesn't really matter because the treatment issue or the personality issue isn't really triggered or threatened by such things. But for some people, I don't know you, Elizabeth, well enough to know, but you sound like you have some signs of this, Um, but I definitely know other people and, and clients that I've worked with in the past as well, who due to relational traumas growing up, as I was saying earlier, they don't trust people very well for good reasons because they've been let down so many times. But deep down, they have all the normal needs of attachment and security and loyalty and love and attention and you know long-term uh, security. And they come across a therapist and they're like, oh my God, this person seems like I can trust them. It seems like they're going to be there for me. It seems like they're someone I can really depend on, perhaps for the very first time in my life. And... Uh, it feels so good to just have someone I can I can depend on, and what ends up happening is people will start to quote unquote obsess on their therapists, and they'll want co- contact with them a lot, and they'll want to know more about their therapist, and they'll want to take care of their therapist because it's normal and functional and pro social to have empathy for the people in your life, the people you care about especially because there's finally this security and finally this nurturing that's happening and, and you, you just want to build that relationship and all that's good. All that's normal. All that is positive. And when a therapist knows what they're doing, they stay state, they stay s- stable, stay, stay stable. <laughs> Why is it hard for me to say? Um, and they are uh, aware of that process and they, you know, dedicate themselves to being a secure attachment for that client so that they can have a corrective experience so that they can learn to trust others and learn to love themselves and learn to um, have, be attracted to people who are functional for them, all the good things that therapy provides. But in that space, the therapist, therapists who know what they're doing, know that they have to be careful about what they reveal to their clients because the client will have an impulse to be a part of the therapist's lives life, uh, which is again totally normal. Uh, the therapist, unless the therapist, well, uh, under extremely rare circumstances which perhaps don't even really exist, um, aside from the extremely rare circumstances for the vast majority of circumstances, the therapist cannot be that level of attachment that the client wants you know, the client wants to move in to the therapist's house, but for the therapist, that just isn't what they want in life. They couldn't do that for all their clients, you know, even if they wanted to. Uh, And it also, even if they did do it, could actually harm the client because once the client actually enters the therapist's life, the client realizes, oh, this therapist is, you know, just as screwed up as anyone else is. And that threatens the security that the client has. Um, And so the therapists who know what they're doing, they know to have boundaries and to share only really what you need to share with a client. So for me, for example, if I had an extended family member pass away and I had to, uh, you know, cancel an appointment or, you know, in her case, pull back on the texting for a, a little bit, I wouldn't say why. I would just say, uh, I'm, I'm really sorry. I just had, I had a family emergency and, and if the client asked me about it, I'd be like, Oh, don't, you know, this isn't about my life. This is about you and I'm here for you, you know, in the treatment capacity that I'm here for you, but you know, don't worry about it. Now that's going to threat. That's going to frustrate a client. Sometimes they'll be like, you know, why won't my therapist tell me more? But that's a better frustration than, when you actually tell your clients about your personal life and then they really start getting it, you know it never stops it's not like telling your client a little bit of information satisfies them you know in this situation it just it 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 just satisfies them a little bit and even gives them a taste for wanting more you know and it also gives this impression that there aren't really any boundaries between the therapist and the client and the and and then when the therapist does draw boundaries the client is like, why are you drawing boundaries here? Because you weren't drawing them before. What did I do wrong to make you do this to me? It is usually the natural question that's asked. And so there's just a very clear treatment protocol for this that is helpful. That isn't necessarily without its frustration to the client, but it works. And when therapists stray from that, then bad things can happen. And, And in my experience, when therapists stray from that, it's, often because they don't really understand. They don't even understand what they're doing. They, they have some sense and some principles that guide them in their behavior, like I'm here to be a support. I, I know that uh, Liz needs support and I'm a therapist and I'm going to support her and that's going to help her. And, you know, that's true. But there's so many other aspects, like the things I'm talking about, that need to be conceptualized and understood and a long-term plan needs to be, Uh, implemented not only just for the clients you identify as having relational traumas, but all your clients. Because really, you just don't know which of your clients have those relational traumas until you actually see them. And sometimes it doesn't crop up until months, if not years, into therapy. And so so anyway, I'm not hearing anything horrible yet, but I know this is heading in a bad place, so I just wanted to lay the groundwork (laughs) on this for for, uh, you know, uh, you know, there's some, there's some yellow flags there. So please continue yeah. your story. You'll
1: have to let me know if it's an, uh, you know, I, I still question how much of it is just about me and my history and my interpretation of things. So anyway, so she set me up and she did know about my trauma. She because she was very interested, you know, that's part of the reason I felt so connected with her is that she really got into my life and my history during these weeks of marriage counseling, um, the time we knew each other. So she did know whether or not she could apply it or, you know, I, I don't know, but so.
0: Yeah. Let me, sorry. interrupt you just one more time. Uh, it, it's also, uh, some people out there might be having a question of like, why was the marriage therapist diving into Liz's personal life so much when it was so one-sided when the husband wasn't offering up that material or the, the therapist wasn't focusing on that? Um, yeah, there's questions there for sure, but it's not an automatic bad treatment thing to do. Uh, plenty of times as a marriage therapist myself, there are phases of couples therapy where one person's personal issues and past becomes uh, a major part of that you know, six-month period of, of therapy. And, and that can be very helpful, obviously, to the individual as they process those experiences. But it's also helpful for the spouse to witness that That processing, because the spouse is usually very much impacted by those issues in their spouse and can thus develop empathy for their spouse's issues. you know when the spouse overreacts to something the the other spouse can say, "Oh, I know where that's coming from because you know her father abandoned her, and so i I understand why she's overreacting and so and I wouldn't know that if i didn't witness that uh, discussion in, in therapy. And so, um, so I'm not hearing anything odd about that, but anyway, please continue your story.
1: Right. So then I, so then I go on to this, she's called around and found people that I could see, you know, individually. And I go to this woman she connected me with and, and, um, it's a psychologist and she, I did notice that, uh, and I'm still seeing actually the psychologist to this day, five years later, the papers, the the form. What are they called? Um, the, the the when I on my first um, session about explaining what what this kind of relationship is, what the boundaries are, that kind of thing. That this this woman had. I don't recall having them with the marriage counselor. Um, you know, saying that this is not a friendship and just outlining all these rules. Um, and then this uh, psychologist. Well, d-
0: do you remember signing anything in the beginning I, of therapy? I don't remember.
1: I could be wrong, but I really don't recall. I, re- I def, I definitely remember it with with the psychologist. I do remember it with her, but i I do not, I do not remember signing anything. But I could be yeah, wrong. So, but I really don't remember that.
0: Yeah. So let me chime in here. I'd give it like a fifty percent chance, given what you're saying. In my estimation, that you did sign something. But it was so brief and so quickly glanced over that it didn't register into your brain. Um, when so, there's two ways, and there's a 50% chance that the therapist didn't have any informed consent, which is actually, uh, I think, technically a, a federal violation of HIPAA at the very least, if if you know, and, and also an ethical violation. But um, and I've heard that before, uh, uh, some therapists they just. I don't know, they just drift away from their understanding of their responsibilities. But but let's just say, uh, give her the benefit of the doubt and say that you did sign an informed consent, a disclosure statement, and that you just don't remember it. And the if that is the case, then, which is quite possible, I mean, I, of all the clients listening out there, you know, think back to the very first session you had with all of your therapists do you do you precisely remember the forms that you signed do you precisely remember what was on those forms i'm guessing the answer is no and part of that is because therapists don't know that they're supposed to actually emphasize certain things verbally with their clients you know when you when you show up to therapy you're you know you're often quite nervous you're you're you know you, you want to get into your story And if your therapist starts giving you things to sign, you you know, you just sign, okay, fine, yeah, yeah. Or at your dentist office, or when you go to surgery or something, you know, you're given a lot of forms and you think, well, you know, I'm sure this is just a precaution and you just sign it and you give it back. But when it comes to therapy, particularly if you're the the sort of therapist that will text with your clients all the time, you have to verbally go over that with your clients and say, so this is what I do. Um, This is the expectation this is what's going to happen. And here are the pros, here are the cons. How do you feel about that? And then there has to be a, a, an, a really, uh, intentional informed consent process for that. And that all needs to be documented in your, you know, progress notes for, for that session. And, uh, I'm just guessing based on your memory that, uh, she just gave you th- something to sign and, and never went over, uh, the boundaries of their relationship, and this psychologist was better trained or just knew better to not only have you sign the thing but actually go over it with you. Did she go over it with you?
1: I, I don't recall her going over it with me. She may have, but i I, I just remember how striking it was that it was so clear. I, I That is what makes me think that I either did not have forms or they were very vague because her forms the the, the psychologists were just so like outlining everything. Um, and making, you know, this is how it's going to be if you see me kind of forms, which is definitely not, whatever it was I had before, it was not that.
0: Right. So in the, f- and also every private practice or every practicing clinician in mental health come, develops their own forms, by the way. Like there's there, there are guidelines to the forms, but I've seen some people with, inadequate informed consent forms disclosure forms that just don't cover all the bases. Um, and so I, I could imagine your first therapist, if they did have a form, she didn't necessarily go into the the sort of detail that your psych your psychologist did. So as you're reading the psychologist's disclosure, uh, what particular disclosure surprised you in, in terms of relationship?
1: I think, you know, it was, um, just it really set out the boundaries. Uh, it made it clear that it was not a friendship, whereas the relationship with the other therapist really felt like more of a friendship. Um, and I think it outlined just like you know, I will be available at certain the hours we agreed upon, kind of thing. I, I think that was part of it. You know that she and and that there would not be relationships uh, or or spending time together outside of sessions and that that sort of thing
0: does your psychologist text with you
1: no she absolutely does not um and the funny thing is like first of all i don't think she's much of a text text texter and i'm i'm not even one myself so it was just kind of odd that i got into that that the other therapist sort of encouraged me
0: right which again is fine as long as you know that's the sort of sacrifice that you want to have in your personal life. Again, I don't recommend that to people because you can burn out pretty quickly. And when you do have legitimate reasons in your life that you can't text your clients, you're pulling back on treatment because of the normalcy of your life. You know, that to expect that you'll always be available 24-7 for all your clients is just unreasonable. So so then what happened?
1: So I would see this psychologist weekly, and I didn't feel nearly as much of a connection with her as I felt with the other therapist, I think in part because of her better boundaries, you know, I think that, I think the other therapist, because of the loose boundaries in a way made me more attached um, and feel warmer. Um, and, and so it, it took a while, like I wanted the original therapist, I wanted to talk to her I mean, I felt like I wanted to talk to her in the way I used to and have that level of connection. And she she did make it, she did indicate that she would be available, but I didn't want to bother her with, you know, what was going on in her life. So I would ask the, oh, so first the psychologist told me that when the other therapist called to sort of, you know, see if she is available for me or whatever, she would say, she'd say, um, I won't say the name, but she's just like, the therapist is so devoted to you. Uh, that kind of thing, like, again, emphasizing, like, it struck her just how much this therapist cared, and so that did a couple of things, like, and I I just sort of thought, well, yeah, I know, And, and also, when I began to have conflicting feelings and began to doubt the original therapist, the first therapist, and wanted to complain, you know, just complain about her, I kind of was reluctant, because I wasn't sure of the relationship between the two of them. Like, that's just, that's just how I am. Like, I start wondering, like, well, do they have coffees, you know, in their personal lives or whatever? And can I, can I really speak up about this other therapist? since she did refer me, like, I started thinking like that. Um, The other thing is, I would sort of beat around the bush, because I really wanted to, to be in touch with that other therapist or touch base with her. And I would say, you know, have you heard from her? Like, what's the deal with, the situation with her father. Like I was trying to, I just didn't know. And I, I didn't ask at the time. I didn't ask straight, straight out. And another complication of this, um, and I don't want to complicate the whole situation, but the other complication of this was that that friend of mine who initially referred me to the troubling therapist. In retrospect, she had bad boundaries too, because she would, she was so involved in my life. It was an older woman, was very involved in my life in the details of my life and very supportive blurring i think her professional uh skills with friendship whatever but she would we would talk about how my sessions with the therapist went um you know not in great detail but you know i would sort of tell this so it was just there are all these really weird boundary things going on um
0: well did you think something nefarious was going on with your friend like she was not really on your side or what what was going on there
1: no i i the friend that, that and that relationship also just um that friend eventually told me uh she abandoned me as well in this whole situation and um had said that you know she had been a very close friend and um she while the at the same time that my husband had left and there's this crisis and the marriage counselor was had left the good friend had also left and um kind of lashed out at me one day and said, I talk to patients all day, I shouldn't have to talk to you too. Um, it had gone from being a very supportive um friendship to to hearing that from her. So, so anyway, uh, uh, I,
0: that's that's uh heartbreaking. Why do you think she did that?
1: I this friend, um, I mean, I was very annoying at the time because uh, I had been friends with her in a period of, of stability in my life and never really had, in her know, knowing me, serious problems. Um, and yeah, I wasn't at my best behavior. I, um, but, and she was very, very involved in my life and a very supportive friend. And she was the one who you know connected me to her the therapist contact. Um, so why did that happen? Because I think it, you know, I, I, I think we had a very um, toxic relationship um, and I was dependent on her as well. And a dependence was created in that friendship as well, just as it was parallel to the relationship with the marriage counselor. So both of those relationships and my marriage all exploded simultaneously.
0: (laughs) Wow. Um, I'm so sorry to hear that. sounds like a really bad. So that was 5 years ago or
1: That so? was yeah, 4 or 5 years 5 years ago. And because of you know, it's a small community and you know, I didn't entirely trust the psychologist I have been seeing. Um it took a long time and she she probably from her perspective wasn't sure what to reveal about her connections to some of these other <laughs> therapists. Um and and it was only this, um, like in the past year that I, I asked her, like, what is your history with the therapist that you know? She knows all about this. She knows how um, traumatized I've I've been. Like I said, how do you know her? Like, do you two, like I laid it out. I said, do you two have coffee together? Do you, you know, and it turned out not to be that. It turned to be out. Uh, she didn't go in again because of her good boundaries, didn't go into detail, but she, I, she's thought about it for a long time. Like she sat there and thought about how she's going to phrase it. And basically they had worked together a long time ago, but really are not in touch. But I think I needed to know that her allegiance was with me for once, that one of these people really was there for me.
0: Right. Exactly. Did the psychologist uh, talk directly about that allegiance to you?
1: Yes. Yeah. And it's taken her, it's taken the process, it's taken years of me to, to trust, to trust that. And the thing is, Kirk, I don't know if I fit that criteria. I definitely have traumas in my life. Um, I don't know if it's really abandonment. It's more that, in my case, I am used to people um, uh, just bending over backwards for me. Um, Complicated people. I have a lot of complicated people in my family who have been very good to me. And so... I I think I I had seen people who were kind of, their boundaries were weird or whatever, but I thought, oh, and they're, you know, they're doing all this stuff for me and that's just normal because, but this was the big, this was what, this was just what was shocking to me, I think, is that I've, I've actually never been so abandoned as I was in that year by my husband, by a therapist, by a very good friend who was also a therapist.
0: Yeah, so I I don't know how much you want to go into your your know, childhood you obviously don't have to but just the abandonment of the your husband alone uh is enough to create trauma that I um, would characterize as relational trauma of abandonment that would make someone very untrusting of of relationships and and very um much uh, in need of extremely obvious secure relationships um, to rebuild uh, having having said that um, growing up with I, I, isis we 've all been abandoned so to speak we 've all been um, abandoned either very explicitly or um, very covertly it, we've we 've all been Made to feel like we're alone. We've all been made to feel that people don't really care about us. We've all been made to feel like we're not a priority. And we've all been traumatized by that in the way that I use the word trauma. And we all have attachment needs and we all have, um, we're all clingy, you know? It, we're all clingy. It's just a matter of how we deal with that clinginess. Some people deny it, some people activate it, some people find functional relationships to cling on to that are actually helpful. Um, So, you know, uh, uh, that's with, without going into your history, which you, if you wanted to, we could um, that's the general thing I'll say about that. Does, does that make sense to you?
1: Yeah, it makes sense. My history is just so long. I have a very, I mean, I know everybody's history is complicated, but mine is rather complicated. So I just think that would take up too much time, but yeah, it makes sense what you're saying. Um.
0: Yeah, okay. So getting back to what you're saying, you're uh right. So that the main thing that I hear if if I was your therapist, I would hear uh um a client who is has a question and wants reassurance that the therapist is allied with with me, you know, or with them. And so, uh, you know, if I had a client who said, so You know, I have this conflict with this past therapist and I know, you know, this past therapist and, you know, what's your relationship like with with that, with that, with that, with with my past therapist? Um, At my best, I would like to think that I would immediately recognize that as a bid for reassurance that I'm on their side. Um, Because to me, I was just sort of thinking, what would I you know let's like i'm you know you listen to the podcast right so mm-hmm. i'm i'm really good friends with with bob and i've i've been friends with him for you know 25 years or so and uh, i was just thinking you know uh, what if i w- what if i had you know that strong of a relationship with bob and then one of his clients came to me and complained about him uh even though i'm more in allegiance with bob personally uh when i have a client i am more in allegiance with my client in a professional way and so if my client was saying to me um you know i i have this complaint about what bob did there would there would be no question that i would validate that and without any reservation and there i mean it would be a little complicated i guess but it's not hard for me to compartmentalize my my love for bob And recognize that uh, a a client can either perceive Bob as being a bad person or could have, or Bob could have made a mistake, you know, or didn't, or Bob didn't navigate a particular situation well, just like I might not navigate certain situations well. And so both can be true. I can both be, you know, uh, I can have love and warmth and empathy and connection with Bob, and I can be absolutely on the side of a client who was wronged by Bob that's never happened to me by the way. And I couldn't talk about it if it was, but, uh, but it hasn't. Um, so, so that's what I would spend most of my energy, you know, in your situation. And it sounds like your psychologist uh, did, which is, um, validating your bid for reassurance and to really establish that, yes, I am on your side and I do understand what you went through and I do validate that. And, there's no question, regardless of my relationship with with the therapist in, in question, did, did you get that impression? Uh, yes, I said,
1: I said, and around that point, or I said um, i am I'm am gaining your trust or something something like that, or you know I'm gaining your trust, and she said, and I, I need to continue to work to gain your trust, like so she, you know she she said that like I am I need to continue to work to gain your trust, and that felt very good. Like she knows and she even in admitting that she needed to do more because I think she felt, I mean, I guess I don't know for sure, but I get the sense and I should ask her, but that she didn't, she was also just very confused about what was going on with this other therapist. Um, she was baffled. Cause I did ask her, I said, but, you know, I've asked her like, what do you think was going on? And she said, I think she's just really struggling. I'm, you know, I'm just baffled. So I, I think in retrospect, my psychologist also maybe in a way feels that she could have done something differently or or it or just you know it was just a very tricky situation
0: the situation where she, your couple therapist referred you or is there well, another situation
1: well or just well the situation which the couple therapist referred me and then just was unavailable after being so available and being vague about her you know her role in my life, or there was never really any clear termination. Um, and just the the therapist, so back to the therapist, I do have some, some other very odd <laughs> examples um, just of the communication. So I think it was that first time I flew to see my husband, like in the middle of this crisis, like I was going to go and try to, you know, make the most of it, whatever. And, where we live, I like I had to take a, a bus. Like you have to take a bus to um to get to the airport. It's a couple hours. And the it turned out that the therapist was on that bus with her family. And I kind of was like, oh my God, like what do I I sat in front of her and um you know I saw like who was in her family, that kind of thing. That's weird enough. And I thought I would just kind of avoid avoid her. But I walked down the aisle and then she she, um, sort of stopped me and she's like, Liz, like, what? you know, let, you know, that kind of like very warm and like, let's talk, you know, you're going, you're flying out to see him. Let's talk, let's meet up in the airport and talk. And I thought, Oh, that's wonderful. You know? Um, like how wonderful, like I haven't seen her in a while and you know, we'll, you know, I think there's something kind of thrilling about like not being in the office. Like we, it would be, and I'm afraid of flying. So like being in the airport before I make this like huge emotional trip." Um, and, and so, so I was really anticipating like arriving at the airport and talking to her before I make this incredibly difficult trip. And, um, but of course we get to the airport, there are different terminals and she's texting. It was just so ridiculous. Like she's texting me, like try all these logistics of trying to meet up and everything. And it turned out she's in a different terminal, of course. And, you know, just, and then she's like, well, I'm on the I'm on the, I'm, she's texting me that she's on the phone with her family about her father, like texting me this, and that she will get back to me, um, and I'm like, okay, just patiently waiting, um, but then, you know, they start to call my flight, I don't this, this is all going on in, an, in about like an hour and a half, like this, like I'm desperately waiting to hear back from her, desperately waiting to meet with her, or at least talk to her, you know, and then they call my flight, and I'm boarding, and I, I actually, when I looked at the most recent text, the text just quickly before I talked to you, there is this text that, in which I'm telling her, I'm sorry, I have to to board now, um, you know, <laughs> to me, I know enough that that is a strange uh scenario and i 'm just I just feel so dis i just felt so disappointed um, and wished I could have talked to her and you know that kind of thing, but to, to bring up at the last just an impromptu that we would meet in the airport and then to not be able to the fact that she didn 't follow through on that, and the fact that she was. Telling me that she was on the phone with her family, like about her own crisis. To me, I I believe that is wrong.
0: Yeah. So, let me ramble about this for a bit. Um, I know that your original question, because we've been emailing about this for a bit, was you had this situation that happened and you weren't quite sure if it was, uh, you know, an ethical or bad treatment. It felt bad to you, and you had some complaints about it, and you know that it's unusual, but you were wondering for me uh, the degree of the problem. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so let me just ramble about this. And I, I think it's a really good example that you're providing that uh, clinicians uh, can out there can uh, mull over and. It, it, it reveals a lot of different things about what it is to be a therapist and, and how to act ethically and how to be caring. You know, one thing is that, uh, and you pointed out really well, is that although you like your new psychologist, you don't feel as connected to her. And uh, your first therapist, you felt very connected to. And it was thrilling and and corrective in some ways. But the problem is that unless that therapist can sustain that for the rest of time then it risks the harm that will inevitably happen where the therapist has to move on somehow now that doesn't necessitate or that doesn't mean that she did something wrong it just means that uh one she didn't tell you heading into that situation the pros and the cons of that form of therapy, you know, like if I was, and I know people like this, I'm not like this, but I know people like this who are extremely warm with their clients. I mean, I'm, I'm warm for sure, but the, the therapists that I know, it's like they leave it all on the table. Like they just, they pour it all out at work and they let the clients really into their lives. And, and I know some people that do this ethically and I, so I know some people who I have questions about, So the way to do it ethically is you, from the beginning, you say, so this is my style of therapy. I'm available 24 seven via text, but understand that I might not be able to get back to you sometimes, you know. Um, But what the reason why I do this is because I really want you to know that you have someone in your corner. And although over text, it's hard to um, really do any meaningful therapy. I just want you to know that I'm here for you and I'm a presence in your life. I mean, like one of the things that I do as a therapist is when clients have relational traumas that are being worked on in therapy, one of the markers that I look for when I realize therapy is working is they will tell me that my voice was in their head, that Mm -hmm. when they were heading into a situation, they were they said to me, you know, you were in my head. You, you, I could hear your voice, you know, not delusionally, but I could hear you telling me to take care of myself. I could hear you telling me that I'm worth it and that I don't need to put up with this shit. And that's when I know that I'm doing a good job. And uh, that's a version of that, right? That's that's a a version of being really just not there only for that one hour a week. You're there for them all the time. And so, although I don't provide that 24-7 service, um, I in fact, I don't text with my clients at all. Um, I It just, it, it once I open the door to that, and I find a lot of younger therapists because they're more used to texting uh, and they might have younger clients who are used to it will engage in that sort of thing. And I just find texting to be, extremely difficult for me anyway to communicate over because I'm just not a good I don't when I text I use my index finger my pointer finger one of my pointer fingers when I'm (laughs) texting you know like a lot of people use both thumbs you know I'm just like duck 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 and uh so I just like to do email because I'm a faster typer on my keyboard but anyway even over email it's just scheduling so because long ago, I just decided, okay, I could be that sort of therapist who 's available all the time, but there 's pros and cons to that um, i 'm going to be available to my clients in the session, and I want to be a presence in their life but i'm not i don 't want to be actually present in their life but again so so you can have therapists who do what your first therapist did, but it all has to be laid out in the informed consent you know, and one of the things that the therapist needed to tell you and periodically check in with you about was. I am your couple therapist. I am the therapist to you and your husband. And although you and I are developing a very deep relationship, especially when you contrast it with me and your husband, understand that eventually that's probably going to end because uh, I'm your couple therapist and, and I don't work with my uh, couple clients individually. And at some point, uh, unless the two of you continue with me as a couple, um, this is going to end. And so I just, I just want you to know that. Um, and or the therapist would, would say, okay, we've been texting a little bit for the past couple of weeks. And I just want to remind you that I'm only doing this temporarily because I feel like you really need someone in your life for these couple weeks. But I'm starting to think like you really need a dedicated therapist for you. And uh, I'm thinking about referring you. I don't know if we need to do that right now, but I'm, I'm thinking about doing that. And uh, so I just want to remind you that uh, I'm here for you now. But at some later date, I'm just not going to be available to you because there's ethical reasons and we can talk about that. But, uh, you know, my policy of not seeing my couples individually and um, I just don't have that capacity professionally for you. Um, Obviously, she never had those kind of conversations. I suspect she doesn't even know to, to think about such things because people like this typically if they think of it, they do it, and so I suspect she either didn't have the training, or doesn't have the willpower, or not the she doesn't really understand this this side of therapy. Um. Uh. So so that's what I'll say about that. The other thing is at the airport, that's an awkward situation for everybody, right? You, you bump into your therapist, and you don't know what to do. Um, you get this vague sense that as a client, you're you're not supposed to say anything. The fact is, as a client, you can do whatever you want. You can be like, that is my therapist. Can I talk with you? Um, It's the therapist that is responsible for upholding treatment standards and ethics. And there's a lot of different options in that situation. It's not an inherent ethical violation for the therapist to have said, uh, hey, how's it going? Um, Let's talk. It's, it's, not the standard of care. It's not normal care, but it's not so far out of the norm that it would be an obvious ethical violation. When you add up all the different things that she did, though, uh, it points towards a lack of competence in the area of understanding uh, how to take care of a client's attachment to you, um, which is a complicated thing. Uh, So so I'm not going to say that Everything she did was was wonderful. There's a pattern there, but any one of the incidents, I wouldn't say is is a um, thing that I'm I'm up in arms about. You, you know me, Liz. You listen to the podcast. There are things yeah, that get me terrible. extremely.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: There are things that get me really pissed off <laughs> when I hear about other therapists doing things. These this isn't this isn't one of them. Um, do I do I think that she harmed you? I, I think she did. Um, do I think that she could have done things to prevent that harm that are pretty obvious to me anyway. Yeah. Uh, Is it normal for some therapists not to understand that? Uh, Unfortunately, yes. Um, So getting to the airport situation, um, the the ethical, you know, some of the clinicians out there might be going, but Kirk, you know, (laughs) there's some obvious things here. And yeah, so let me just mention them. One is, is that as a therapist, the standard of care generally is that you as a therapist do not acknowledge clients in public that if to preserve their confidentiality and their privacy for that matter. uh, If a client approaches you and says, hello, then it's ethical. It's considered ethical behavior to respond and say, hello. And then if the therapist or if the client says, hey, everyone, this is my therapist, then it's the client is uh, revealing that that relationship. And then you can go along with that if you want to. Now, if when I'm in that situation, um, I, and I am occasionally uh, one, I don't acknowledge my clients in public because I have already explained to them um, maybe more than once that if I bump into you in public, I will not acknowledge you because I want you to have your own privacy and your own confidentiality. If you want to say hi to me, you can say hi to me, but if you want to have a conversation, I'm going to cut you off because I want to preserve your confidentiality. And frankly, we can't really get into any of your personal issues when we're at the grocery store. And so uh, I apologize for that in advance. If that ever happens, it's going to be awkward. If I ever do bump into you in in public, it's going to be weird. You know, (laughs) it's just going to be kind of a weird situation. It's like bumping into your, you know, to your teacher uh, somewhere or something, you know. Um, So, uh, but just understand that, you know, those are those, that's the protocol. And then when I do bump into someone in public, um, I might have eye contact with them cause I don't want to act like I don't see them if they're looking at me, but I don't say hi. And usually they don't say hi to me, usually because they just have a vague sense that it's not a good idea. And then we talk about it in later sessions, you know, we'll be like, so I bumped into you at, this, at the grocery store. How do you feel about that? Um, now, so for her to acknowledge you as, as a client is pretty much an ethical violation. Uh, in and and she itself. did it on
1: another occasion too. Um, and I ran into her at the post office downtown and looked at, I looked at her and I was going to walk past because I didn't think we should, you know, talk, but she, she actually literally called out my name when I was pretty far down the street of a, a main street and then proceeded to, and this is during the kind of vague time in which I'm no longer seeing her, but sort of, you know, having her available as a marriage counselor. I have this, I call, you know, so, you know, and she she's like, no, let me, tell me how it's going. And we're standing there on Main Street. But I got wrapped up in it again, like caught up in her warmth. And, you know, I wanted to tell her, but I was trying to be good. And, you know, because I, I think I had a sense that this is not quite right. She, But she was the one, you know, asking me, stopping me, acknowledging me.
0: Right, which is... Clearly not standard of practice. The complicating factor here is that she could have intuited that you wanted her to reach oh, yeah. out to you. On that, moment. I probably.
1: Oh yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, but yeah,
0: yeah. So, so that's a complicated. That's a complicating factor because uh, now that doesn't justify what she did, and and any ethics board would look at that and say, well, it doesn't matter if she wanted you to. You were still violating her her unless you have some kind of agreement with her. You're violating her confidentiality. It's pretty clear, you know. Um, Now, the egregiousness of the uh, uh, violation is pretty low on the scale that that is typically adjudicated by ethics boards and ethics experts. Um, You know, it's not like she posted on the internet, I am seeing this particular person and she tells me all the, you know, those are the sort of ethical violations that are pretty egregious. Um, And to be clear for people who don't, know such things is that when a therapist, you're, when your therapist called out to you on the street, anyone watching that interact action and anyone who knows that your therapist is a therapist, they might wonder, is that a client? And especially if the therapist starts asking questions yeah. in a ther- therapeutic it- manner, like um, in our last session, we talked about this, how's that going? Uh, Then obviously any bystander would uh, know in that moment that you are a client of hers. And that is a federal HIPAA violation upon which there is no gray area, you know, Um, and that's very strict. It'd be the same as if you're, you know, let's say you had HIV or you had, I don't know, chlamydia or something and your physician bumped into you at the Safeway and said, how's that chlamydia going? Um, you know, that's a, a, a clear federal violation. Um, that's you know quite obvious to, to most uh, clinicians. I guess not obvious to her. Um, again, what I think happened, I've seen this. When you have therapists who are uh, so dedicated to their clients, which is great, I, I commend her for being very dedicated to her clients. I'm very dedicated to my clients. Um, but what ends up happening is, is to, to, to sort of speculate just based on this one incident, what this one incident, she's on the road, she sees you uh, on the sidewalk. She's told the she saw me the post office
1: a, and followed me out, followed me out onto the, okay. onto the
0: street. Great. So she sees you at the post office and she reached, she reaches a, a why in the road, a, a classic ethical dilemma. On one hand, she has this desire to reach out to you. That's good. She intuits that you would want her to reach out to her. She intuits that if she reaches out to you, you will have a corrective experience of like, oh, someone actually cares about me. She knows that it will brighten your day. It will, it will give you strength to move on that day that she can reach out to you and prove to you that she cares and actually hear you and be there for you. So that's one direction on the road. The other direction on the road is, but I am potentially breaking the law on one level. I am potentially breaking my ethical codes. I'm potentially setting up a precedent that I shouldn't be setting up. I'm potentially opening a door to giving the impression to this client that I'm not just her therapist, but I'm actually like her mother or her friend or her aunt or her, be- you know, yeah. I'm not just a, th- I'm not just a professional relationship. I'm giving the impression of, uh, I'm, I could be giving the impression that I'm going to be available to this person for free for the rest of my life, for the you know rest of our lives together. And that is not a good impression. And again, just to reiterate, I might be breaking the law. Um, and so you reach this dilemma. It's like, well, on one hand, I- I'm going to help my client by reaching out to her. But on the other hand, I could harm her by reaching out to her. And I could also harm my practice by reaching out to her. What do I do? And that's the dilemma. And most therapists, or I hope, work out, okay, well, I see the benefits to reaching out to her, but the the benefits, the the, uh, concept, the potential bad consequences to reaching out to her are so much greater that uh, I have to sacrifice the potential benefit uh, of reaching out uh, because it's it's too much of a sacrifice to you know incur the bad consequences um but for her she consistently chose the other side you know the side that she would choose to disregard professionalism to help you so it's not like she was motivated by malice it's not like she was motivated right. by personal interest she was she was motivated by a very real uh, tangible benefit to to your recovery and your well-being um but she wasn't looking at the big picture and she also wasn't looking at her own license <laughs> you know uh so uh so that's that's uh what I'll say about that one um and uh i don't know is this making sense to you
1: it makes sense and but i i also want to say i have um another interesting twist to this was that a couple of years later, I have a friend and we were, we were picking strawberries at a farm and I was talking about my divorce and I alluded to this therapist, like not even thinking, but you know, I was just talking, like going over what happened. And I alluded to this therapist by first name and my friend kind of froze and said, was it, what was the last name? And I told her, and then she's like, Oh my God. And then she proceeded to tell me that she had been a client of this therapist for eight years. And it was like, And finally, she just abruptly left, like without, my friend left without saying goodbye because then she felt this incredible dependence on this woman. Same thing, in this case, the woman um, encouraged her to call all the time and that the woman's husband would sometimes answer the phone and then get her at home. And my friend was just very, that same kind of feeling that I relate to, like incredibly attached and like loving this woman, but also just feeling incredibly harmed by the experience. And so it was so bizarre and telling to have met someone else who had been through it with this, this woman. And it's like, we have um, like a little club, you know, where we, every time we see each other, we make some kind of joke or, you know, we have to talk about it. It's like this little support yeah. group. We have.
0: While we're talking about support groups, I started at the behest of some listeners, a, Closed Facebook group called "Clients Harmed by Therapy." I think it's called. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, let me look up the names. I, I've changed it a, uh, once because it used to be just for romance. Yeah, "Clients Harmed by Therapy." I change. I, I created a closed Facebook group. So if you want to join, so it's a closed group in that you have. T- I have to approve you. And Bronwyn uh, also is an admin and. Uh, so we have to approve people to be in the group. And once you're in the group, then only you can see what's in the group. Now, again, Facebook isn't, you know, yeah. totally uh, confidential, but it it's, you know, kind of confidential uh, or kind of a, a barrier to having your story being told to everyone. And so it's a, it, people are helping, um, people are supporting each other, telling their stories. And, and it is liberating to people to hear other people's stories. That's why I get so many emails because that, like I said, the few times that I do talk about this, people are like, "Oh my God, that happened to me!" I did. I thought I was the only one, and I thought I was alone in this feelings. In this, in the same way that when you met this other client of your past therapist, you're like, "Whoa!" I'm guessing it felt good, you know, yeah. to oh yeah, to have that validation. Um, let me ask, why did she leave the therapy?
1: She said, "Well, she, she said that the impetus for leaving was that the therapist changed offices." And that's what she's like, eh. but she knew it was more like she just had this incredible dependence on the therapist and hated that feeling.
0: Well, let me ask, and this is you interpreting your friend and also, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but specifically maybe you thinking about your experience. Did, did you get the impression that the therapist has a personal need to have oh, her oh, clients yeah. depend yeah. on her? Yes, okay. I
1: mean, I don't think I felt it at the time. It just felt great to you know to have that support, but obviously, the therapist is getting something out of this um, you know, this need to feel needed this she's a rescuer, and there are other things in her life that I know of um advocacy she's involved in or whatever I learned later she's a total rescuer, and it comes from a good place um but but it's it, not well.
0: I, I question I that. it. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, to be loving and to be warm and to have an impulse to be available for your clients that comes from a good place. But because you described your other, you know, your friend who also had experience, it it it's something is something clicked in me. I was like, oh, and I'm wondering if the listeners have been like screaming at their phone this whole time, going, <laughs> Kirk, why aren't you asking this question? and yeah. it, fi- it finally sort of occurred to me, like, oh. I bet that the therapist has her own relational wounds, that she gets self-worth or um, some kind of uh, need met by having people depend on her. And although there's nothing wrong with that, there's nothing wrong with, um, I mean, every therapist gets a little bit of that need met, um, or most therapists do, I should say. Uh, but, if the need is so great and you don 't and you don 't know as a therapist that the need is great and you don 't know how you 're enacting that need, then you might actually untherapeutically encourage that and foster that in clients, even though treatment wise it 's probably not necessary or not a good idea to go that far with it like and I looking back at you know the way you're telling your story uh, it's one thing to be available it's another thing to have your therapist actually reach out to you you yeah. know over over text or to reach out to you at the post office or to reach out to you at the airport and to, and to and to be like, uh, "Hey, you know, uh, do you have any needs that need to be met <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then to immediately meet that need right it It gives this impression that. Oh, I, you know, I, well, let, tell me this. Obviously, you recognized that you needed your therapist and that you benefited from her uh, attention and help and, and warmth and affection. Did you get the impression back then that she had a need for you to need her?
1: I didn't re- recognize it at the time, but I certainly recognize it now. I, um, I, because I felt, I just felt like I was so needy and I kind of felt like she was God. Like she, you know, like, and I think that's of course why someone like that would like that. You know, I I just looked up to her. I turned to her for, for support. I needed her. Um, I guess it would make someone feel very important. I totally see it now.
0: Right. So I think that's, if I'm, I'm just interpreting your interpretation to some extent of your friend, which is that your friend noticed or intuited or maybe even consciously understood that as the, as your friend wanted to pull away for whatever reason, just being like, yeah, I think I want to take a break after eight years, or I think I want to slow down or whatever. Your friend was like, but my therapist is not going to react well if I pull away. And so I'm just going to ghost her because I don't know how to deal with her energy around this. Do you think that's what happened?
1: Oh, that's quite possible. Yeah. Yeah. She just, my friend just left abruptly and never contacted the therapist again.
0: I mean, don't you think that's kind of weird, you know, for the, the therapist, for the client to really appreciate that warmth and then one day just be like, peace, I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There, yeah. there has to be a reason for that, you know? Yeah. Again, we're just speculating. But, but my friend like could, I, I
1: asked her, she she couldn't really articulate it, uh, you know? She just, it was, again, It's this, this blend of, you know, she was so, that woman was so wonderful and I was so attached to her, but I really resent her. And, you know, we laugh about this woman. We're like two little high school girls talking about a teacher we hate. Um, in a way, it's that kind of resentment, like that we're dependent on this woman and she hurt us so badly you know we like to make fun of her or um uh sort of uh, impersonate her and you know in our little mini support group
0: well why does your friend feel harmed by her
1: i, I my impression is that because well, so because she was with her for so long eight years and i think i just i sense that my friend i i, I think my friend I think for my friend, she felt, I think she articulated this, that it was like the first time she had ever been so cared for. And I think she, I think it was that whole thing. She resented that has to end at some point. And, you know, you, you, that that's the whole problem. You say some therapists are this way. In my experience, it's a, it's a terrible, like, how does, how could it ever work? The therapist sets up this thing that cannot last and cannot be. And I think it makes much more sense to set up something where it, it's also, like you said, where the therapist becomes, you know, the therapist's spirit can be with the client for the rest of the client's life, that voice in the head, that, that lesson that people can be depended on. Um, it is totally unrealistic and impractical that the therapist is going to be available for a client you know, for the rest of the client's life. So it's going to be incredibly painful to set up that attachment and dependence.
0: Yeah, yeah, this is a really interesting question because I, I don't think I've really contemplated the question you're posing uh, in, in this way before. I, I don't have to because I don't I don't operate like what she operates and, and none of my students or supervisees do as well, partially because I don't think they want to, but also partially because I wouldn't let them uh there there's just so many risks to this style of therapy that I wouldn't let any of my supervisees do this sort of thing. Um and like I said, I don't think any of my supervisees have an impulse to be that. But, but yeah, it's an interesting question because if I was to expand the question you're asking, even with my style, you know, I don't text with people. I I I'm there one hour a week and they develop dependency on me. And by your statement, it's it's still true. It's it's uh, unrealistic to expect that that will last forever. Now, what I'll counter with is like it could last forever. I'm going to be a therapist for the rest of my life, and uh, and I plan on you know living an average lifespan eighty three or whatever the half Asian life expectancy is for a male, um, and. Most of my clients will probably be with me until the end. Uh, most of my, all my clients right now are long-term clients, so I, I suspect that at the very least, they will be the one to terminate with me, and I won't be the one to terminate with them. Um, and so uh, I can, and many therapists can uh, allow the client to terminate with them when the when the th- when the client wants to. So uh, now it's a lesser attachment. And uh, so I think that's where the question, the the other question comes in of just like, um, it, when it's much more involved attachment, you're talking every day, multiple times that you're texting five times a day. I mean, that is just, wow. Um, but if that's your style, uh, again, it's not inherently unethical. I think, what and I think I sort of mentioned this earlier, but just to reiterate it, I think what was drastically missing in her approach was meta conversations from her initiated by her with you two clients and maybe her other clients about what was happening and what the risks are, and to talk about it sometimes, you know, like with uh your friend, I wonder what would have happened if the therapist would have said something like, so we've been working together for a number of years and I, uh, my approach is such that I'm available to you as a, as a therapist, but to some extent kind of more than a therapist in, in that I want to be a presence in your life and I want you to feel like you have someone in your corner. And that means that sometimes we chat outside of therapy sessions. Um, but understand that I I am your therapist and I'm not your friend and I'm not your grandma or I'm not your mother. But if you want to experience me in that way, you can, but just understand that, you know, this is a professional relationship and that uh, if, you know, there's certain circumstances that might come up where I actually can't be available to you, you know, I have a personal life. And I'm not going to go into detail about that. Um, but, uh, you know, how do you feel about that? Is it is is that scary to you? Is it too much? How do you feel about it? Let's talk about it. Um, let's talk about the risks. Maybe maybe we shouldn't be texting, and maybe we should be just doing uh, once a week. Or uh, do you ever? F- or another question the therapist could be asking themselves at the very least, and maybe their clients is, do you ever feel like? I'm pressuring you to be attached to me, <laughs> you know, like, do you, do you ever feel that way? You know, just opening up those kinds of conversations. It, it, it's not, um, like I said, it's it, the, the things you're telling me, I could easily, uh, apply to myself. Like I, I could have a client who secret, who I don't know terminated with me, who resents me for, the attachment that we built, even though it was deaf much more in the, uh, in the standard of care and that I didn't do anything outside of sessions. And, but in session, you know, I would have clients that would become dependent on me and I don't, uh, I don't shy away from that kind of work because I want people to have corrective experiences and and that sort of dependency is going to happen. I, so I might have some clients out there who I don't know because they didn't ever told me who resent me uh, for, uh, building that attachment that quote unquote eventually had to end. Now I've had the luxury of never having to actually terminate with a client. It, I could go into detail about that, but in my 20 plus years, I've never, I've never really changed jobs to the point where I I had to terminate with a client. All my clients have terminated with me aside from this, this contract work I used to do with the state, but that was really short term as like crisis work anyway. Um, and those clients had the option of working with me privately after that. But anyway, Um, so when I tell you that, what do you think about that, that, you know, it's possible that I, even I have clients who resent me for that.
1: Yeah. That makes sense too. That, yeah, it just depends on the perspective and that sort of thing. And no, I can see that as well. And that for some people, the therapeutic experience is the first time these people have really felt seen and it's very powerful. I still, I still think some therapists can really overdo it though. Um, like, like when it gets to the point where they are the ones reaching out, I guess that's maybe the warning sign um, that it's a need of their own to, uh, to the, to the detriment of the client.
0: Right. The way that I've always, I don't know, visualized it is that I am talking with a, an adult person who is a client of mine who knows that I am a therapist and I act like a therapist and I, I, I should also say that I have a home office, which, you know, is a somewhat of a blurry boundary with some people. I've always had a home, I've had a home office for 20 years and, you know, and I have pictures of my family up on the wall in my hallway and people will use my bathroom, you know, and uh, that sort of thing. Um, I have a lot of strict boundaries about um, that. They never see my family they don't even see my pets. Like I, sometimes they'll be like, Oh, I hear your dog. You know, can I see your dog? I'm like, Nope. (laughs) You know, it's, that's, that's, you're not, I don't say this, but I give the impression like you're not a guest, you're not a visitor, you're a client and we're here to do a professional thing. And my pets are for, um, you know, it's a, that's just a boundary. I just don't want to go down. Mm -hmm. So how is this conversation going for you? Is this, is this helpful at all?
1: Oh yeah, it is helpful. It is helpful. Yeah. And I hope it, I just, I don't know. I hope it's useful for you and your listeners because it's not one of those dramatic, it's not one of those dramatic examples. It's not like I hadn't, I slept with a therapist or anything like that. Um, but I, and, and I don't know if you, if you have questions about my history, I, I'm happy to answer them. I just think it's such a long history, but I definitely, you know, I don't know how much of it, the fact that I was so harmed by this is a lot about my history. I'm sure and a lot about just the crisis that was going on at the time. And a lot of – the therapist was very relaxed in her approach, but also just did not clearly communicate. And I was an inexperienced client who didn't know what to expect. Um, And it's a small community. And and all these things, all these things have haunted me.
0: Right. I think – so I I sort of alluded to this earlier, so maybe I should – put a fine point on this point, which is that when we, when I, I'll just say it for me, when I work with all my clients, uh, but particularly when I work with clients with issues that make it so that they, part of their reparative work and their therapy involves them becoming dependent on me and very attached to me and very clingy with me. Like I said before, that's a sign that therapy is working. And when that happens, I say, oh, good, you know, we've reached that point. I'm not happy that they're clinging to me. I'm not looking for them to cling to me. But what I see is it's an indication that they need to cling to someone who is secure. And through that security, they can internalize that security and thus, at the end of that process, not need to cling to people as much. And I've worked with clients like this before uh, for years and years where uh, the first phase of therapy, they're very questionable. They're very sort of um, hesitant around me. We enter sort of the middle phase where they're very clingy to me and, and they very much uh, are very concerned about what's in my head and if I really care about them. And then the last phase after they've internalized our relationship is they don't need me anymore. And they just sort of naturally start attaching to people in their personal life because through my, the attachment they had with me, they've learned to trust themselves and other people and their working models of themselves and other people have improved. And then they terminate with me. Uh, they just sort of, we, we switch to once a month and then we switch to once every couple months and then they just say, and then they, they say, I think I'm done with therapy. And so uh, with, well, as I'm doing that process, I'm very careful with that relationship because i, I don't want them to cuz i through experience which is not intuitive and i think that this is a problem that a lot of therapists suffer from is that a lot of therapists act intuitively and i i i, I it, that's not a good guide when it comes to relational traumas it's it's really not intuitive like one of the non intuitive things about it that i think you and and your friend exhibit is that even though you are conscious and unconsciously saying and giving a lot of vibes that you really do appreciate the attachment and the the warmth that you're getting from your therapist. There's also this uh, danger of when a therapist reveals a bunch of stuff about their personal life and, and exhibits their own needs to their clients, that the client will start to develop interesting ideas about the therapist that threaten the security. That It's a complicated thing, but I'm going to try to explain it. And I don't think I've ever really talked about this before on the podcast. So I'm, I thank you for this opportunity for me to meander my way through this. And hopefully it's yeah, not sure. boring or, or useless to people. Um, so I'm going to try to tie it to parenting. Because therapy is a form of parenting in a lot of ways and it's it's not dysfunctional or strange to say that it's it's quite um, wonderful to be reparented in a in a good way we all need mentors we all need people to pay attention to us we all need nurturing we all need mothering we all need fathering for the for our entire lives Uh, it's it's just a fact and uh, some of us need it more than others because we didn't get enough of it growing up or it was complicated in some way but anyway so when we look at our parents, and we're 5 and 10, we, we're obviously involved in their lives. We live with them. Uh, usually, we know what they're doing in their life. We know when they go to the bathroom. <laughs> you know, We know stuff about them. But usually, the uh, functional parenting style involves the parents not revealing what's really going on in their head to the kids that you don't know as a kid that your mom is depressed. You don't know that your dad hates his job. You don't know that your mom and dad or your two moms or your two dads or your five parents are having conflict or that their sexual lives aren't going well or that um, now there are certain emotions that are not threatening to kids like uh, sad, you know, mild sadness, mild anger. But to truly understand your parents' emotions is not functional for, for most situations. It's hard to generalize, but I, I hope you get my, my message here, is that when a child is subjected to the inner lives of their, of their parents, depending on their developmental stage, it can actually threaten them because the kid doesn't have the ability to understand that the parent can have uh, gray areas. You know, to a five-year-old, you need to believe that your parent is is a god. Uh, it's functional for, a, for a, a zero to, you know, 13-year-old to believe that their parents can do anything, that they can handle anything, they can do anything, that they're impervious, that they're eternally resilient. And why do kids need to have that notion? Well, because they don't feel resilient themselves they don't feel safe. They don't feel like they can get by. And so they need to believe that their uh, parent will be there for them and will never have anything that will get in the way of the parents being there for them and their needs. As the child gets older and they start to be able to uh, be more independent themselves, they can begin to handle the notion that their parents are human beings with the same ups and downs in their mood and the same insecurities that they have. But when you're young, you can't have that notion. Okay. Uh, I think, does that make sense to you, Liz? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So as we are relationally traumatized growing up, and then we go into therapy to have corrective experiences that emulate parenting, they're not, it's not parenting, but it emulates it. We as clients benefit and have a need to put our therapist on a pedestal and not have any knowledge of, at least visceral knowledge, of our therapist having their own personal problems. And uh, we intellectually know, because we're, you know, 45 years old, that our therapist must have personal problems. But it's helpful sometimes, often, for us as clients to not have contact with that And to allow us the fantasy that our therapist is eternally resilient and, you know, it's a one way relationship and they don't need anything from me and they aren't threatened in the world and they don't have problems. And when I sit down in their office, I can vent and they can support and nurture me and there's nothing that's going to get in the way of that. And one of the ways to facilitate the Um, upholding of that fantasy that I think is helpful to clients is for therapists not to self-disclose too much and especially not to self-disclose about things that are uh, difficult for the therapist or, um, you know, that the therapist is still working on, still processing. Effective self-disclosure can be wonderful, but it has to be done in an effective way, in a careful way. Uh, and especially if the therapist gives off the impression that the therapist needs the client emotionally in some way. Um, because again, that's one of the things, it's, it's nuanced, but in general, good functional parenting doesn't involve the child understanding that the parent needs the child, especially when the child's really young. Uh, that's overwhelming to a child It's, it's too complicating. It's threatening to the attachment. Do you think this was at play, Liz?
1: Oh, oh yeah. And I have to say, and this almost seems too obvious, but I just wanted to mention that this woman is so, her essence is so much like my own mother's and my own mother is um, incredibly warm and attuned and a professional in the caring professions herself, but is an alcoholic, was an alcoholic when I was young, There was this setup in which my mother was most of the time just so um, warm and a wonderful, caring mom. But she had substance use disorder, and I, in turn, you know, felt responsible for her. So all of this, uh, I think, came back in a really dramatic way in this um, experience.
0: Did you know? I mean, it sounds like a silly question, but uh, just to be. Clear, did you know your mother had personal issues and uh, at, at a young age when you were young?
1: oh yeah, yeah, I knew I knew and i um I was the last kid left in the at home, and my mom was a single mom um, my dad was a is a great dad, but he they were they divorced when I was eleven and he um he lived elsewhere but um but yeah, so my mom and I were very close, she was very you know we are still very close to this day um but that you know a nurturing um like professional in her her professional life too that's what she did and um was very devoted to me and yeah i adore my mom but it's a very complicated relationship and definitely the the alcoholism uh you know had its effect and i i also felt at, of course, at times, the need to care for my mom, so here was this therapist later on, at a crisis point in my life, who was really like the essence of my mother, same kind of warmth and sense of humor and everything, and um yeah, same kind of dynamic playing out, except the therapist ultimately abandoned me for good without intending to but so so all of this was kind of going on and and it was just so. So very confusing to me,
0: what if your first therapist had somehow recognized that toward the end and while you were still in couple's therapy with her and, oh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Knew, and knew and knew about your history and maybe but she even, did
1: know she did know, yeah,
0: okay, or at least uh, or or in addition understood the transference of sensitivity and how she was emulating that and how, what if she had, and it's hard to know obviously, cause you, you wouldn't know, but what if she spent say five sessions toward the end, five years ago, uh transitioning saying we are now transitioning out of therapy and I understand how this could make you feel uh, bad about me because you, in a in a wonderful opening up to me, have be, you know have become uh, attached to me, and I'm attached to you, and but but this relationship has to end because it's professional. Let's talk about that. Let's process the feelings about that over five sessions or more if necessary. And uh, but it, but it's going to be hard, and there's going to be some grief there. And um, and I'm sorry about that. Would that have helped?
1: It would have helped. Um, I, I did return to, for one last visit to that therapist. I, we, we, you know, when we were texting back and forth um, around the time my husband and I agreed to get divorced. Uh, I did, I, you know, she and I had this texting exchange, the one in which I told her, you know, we're getting divorced. And she's like, well, you know, this is not a conversation to be had over a text because I was angry, um, which made sense. So I went in and I saw her and I told her all she did listen. We sat for about two hours and I told her just so how profoundly hurt I was. I believe I told her about how confusing she had been, you know, in touch, not in touch, you know, calling out to me on the street that day, all that stuff. And the thing is she, she denied, she, she just, she denied that there could be something wrong in that. I I got a sense that she was defensive. And the other thing was that, um, and, and she was that, you know, she, when I said that I was getting divorced, um, her, her kind of comment or attitude was, well, it's for the best kind of thing. When for months and months, she was like, Liz, you two have this incredible love for each other, you know? So that also was, and, and then, so, So I did. I sat for two hours and just told her, and she did listen. I mean, I'll give her credit for that. And then the other thing is, she did offer to, um, you know, she said, but it was vague again. Like, if you need to talk to me again, let me know, kind of thing. So she did offer. She did put that out there, but it would have been more helpful if it had been phrased as you said, because we. It would be good to talk because blah blah blah. Instead of Liz, reach out to me if you feel like it. I mean, at that point, I was just so. Yeah. I, so I can, so I didn't, and I just harbored this grief and, um, just of confusion and sadness and anger, a lot of anger towards her. And I would talk about it with the, you know, my psychologist and that kind of thing. And, um, only recently in the, the past year, I wondered if um, at one point, my psychologist suggested that we bring in this other therapist and the three of us talk, and I wasn't ready to do that. But then a year or two passed, and I thought, you know, I still am struggling with this, and I think I'm ready. I, I would like for that to happen. And I, I brought that up with a psychologist, and she said, I, I actually no longer think that's a good idea because I just think it has taken you and me, you know, the two of us, so long to establish a good relationship that bringing that other therapist back into it. And then she, then, I considered, well, would I want to go actually see the troubling, the, the first therapist on my own? But no, I just can't. I just can't do that. I just, I don't think that's a good idea either. I've thought about that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It would have helped to unpack all this, to have a clearer termination and to just realize what the heck was happening. And I, I think part of the conflict, uh, complication was that, you know, I'd started seeing this woman in the context of marriage counseling. And I, one of the things was, I don't think anybody thought that my marriage would turn out as it did, that it would become such a serious problem. I don't think, um, you know, I, I don't think the marriage counselor actually thought I was going to get divorced and that it would turn out that way. Um, I just, no one saw any, I just feel like no one saw any of this happening uh the dynamic that the marriage counselor and i would be the you know close and would have to terminate and all that and yeah at times i certainly questioned uh just how needy i was and that i thought i was some weird person for being so upset about the relationship i had with a therapist that i thought that i had loved it was just so confusing
0: yeah well i'm glad you have your current therapist to navigate that with Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there. What what you said, I mean, the first thing I'll say is, on behalf of my field, I apologize, Uh, and I and I mean that sincerely because my field, although there's a lot of well-meaning and well-trained people, there's a pattern of lack of uh, emphasis put in training and supervision and continuing education. Around the ability to understand what to do as a therapist in a situation like this. This is why a lot of clinicians listen to this podcast, because it's one of the few places where we actually tackle these kinds of things in a nuanced way, in my opinion. You know, a lot of uh, trainers or because I've gone to a lot of trainings, what they will say in a situation like this is this therapist is terrible. She doesn't know what she's doing. She's texting all the time. Everything's awful. and, they, they there's this sort of black and white way of looking at it. And for some people, they either walk away with this black and white thinking, which isn't necessarily true, and or they walk away without really understanding the principles that guide our understanding, which is what I'm trying to do with this episode. I'm trying to point out, like, it's not a matter of rules. It's a matter of understanding what's best for the client. It's not a matter of being warm. And that's the end of it. It's a matter of being warm in a way that's best for the client and, and accounting for client sensitivities and the reality of the professional relationship and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, It's not a matter of never self-disclosing. It's a matter of how one self-discloses and, and that's a much more nuanced, much more difficult situation to, train. And it's also, you know, I'm guessing I will get emails from some clinicians who will be like, Kirk, I can't believe that you were being nice to her previous therapist. I mean, you were you were going too easy on her. I mean, look at all the bad things she was doing. And if you listen carefully to everything I'm saying, people out there that might say that, at least I, I think, uh, I, I am not being easy on her. Uh, I, I'm just saying that there are gradients. There's there's degrees. And like I said, if I had a supervisee who did this, I would tell them to immediately stop. And I would, you know, really question why they were doing that. But, you know, there's a lot of styles of therapy out there.
1: That's exactly what my psychologist said that therapists have different styles.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and so uh, it's not like a slam dunk, unethical thing. But obviously, this therapist dropped the ball in certain ways. Like I said, just one. Easy example is recognizing that her style of therapy is going to be uh, is going to present a, a lot of complication for some clients around termination, and particularly for clients who have relational traumas that result in them being uh, very attached and, and very dependent on the on the therapist, which isn't terrible, but a recognition of I have to really pay attention, to determination, really take care of clients around that, and really. Um, she she didn't do any of that stuff, which is, which is you know neglected in my opinion.
1: And she's um, going through a crisis of her own with a death in the family, and so. But the fact that I know that and it, it right. creates this conflict. You know, then I feel guilty for yeah. feeling bad.
0: Yes, so th- that's another detail. There's, you know, probably a set of 10 pretty obvious things that uh, she could have done differently. She didn't have to tell you about the crisis she was going through. There was no purpose in that, in her telling you that. Uh, and it's an overall pattern of, of hers. Um, and it's suspected that she has her own needs, that she hasn't really worked out yet, that she um, needs that sort of dependence from her clients and, and actually pressures her clients into being dependent on her. That Again, Dependence isn't bad It's if it's pressured by the therapist. Um, then it's bad. Um, yeah, her being defensive is a big, big red flag. Uh, like I said, there's, nothing, there's different styles of therapy of being very available and that kind of thing. But there's no style of therapy that involves being defensive. <laughs> uh, to, and that is illuminating. And I see this often. You know, when, when clients confront me, Which doesn't happen that often these days. It happened in my younger career because I worked with a more, say, variety of clients, where I would I would get confronted, and I would like to think that 99% of the time I just accepted it. I knew, I knew well enough to say, well, even if you disagree with the client, it's not going to do any good, (laughs) and there's got to be a grain of truth to this. And so go along with the grain of truth. And so whenever clients complained about me, and sometimes were just flat, you know, very rarely, you know, maybe a, two or three times they would just, they were flat out just uh, berating me. I would go along with that. I'd be like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. I'm, I, I didn't, I didn't mean to do, I didn't mean to let you down, but I clearly did. And I'm the professional here and I should know better. And I'm not going to make any excuses and I'm sorry. And I'm going to try to do better by you. And um, I can't believe that I did that to make you feel that way. I I have to say, I didn't do it on purpose, but um, I'm really sorry I did that. Now I'm not saying, you know, defensive things like, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. (laughs) Or, uh, you know, this is why I did that. I did that because of this. Or, well, you're only thinking that because you have this issue or something like that. Like, I'm not saying anything like that so so that's another problem obviously it it's you know a, a lot of therapists do this kind of stuff, and it that's not a it's not a, a in the it's all a matter of like perception and opinion of the masses and you're going to get some people that will say defensiveness is is an egregious act um i'm I tend to be on that end of the spectrum, and you'll find other people will be like, well, I don't know we're humans, and sometimes you get defensive what are you gonna do so uh Or some people actually say you have a right as a therapist to defend yourself, which I'm not going to disagree with, but therapeutically you have to think about what's happening in the moment. So, uh, but I do apologize to you, Liz, because uh, in my field, we're not doing enough and we're not paying it. We don't know we're not doing enough as a field, which is, which is a, a problem. It'd be like if you had a, in the medical profession, a bunch of people dying from, a procedure or from a condition that if training was more specific and more required or something, then you would save people's lives. Well then, and the, and the, and the medical profession has known about this problem for decades and they haven't done enough about it. Then, you know, we have a, a a legitimate beef with the medical uh, community and uh, clients have a legitimate beef to the therapeutic community for not, uh, for, for we've known about this problem since Freud. So it's not like it's new or it's not like it's not written about or not thought about it or not researched. It's it's a known thing and it's been mulled over, especially by psychodynamic, interpersonal, psychoanalytic people since the beginning of the profession. So I apologize to you for that. It's, you know, it's it's not, it's unfair that you And your friend, and all the other clients out there listening, have to go through shitty therapy uh, when uh, all we have to do is just pay more attention to this sort of stuff, and and have expert supervisors who know. Because that's the other thing: you can go to a training on this and learn the principles, but that only get you, baby, like three percent of the way there. What you need, like, I have supervisees right now and consultees who have been students of mine. They've been supervisees of mine. They've they listened to the podcast. They've heard a lot of the principles that you know are important. But then they come to me in person and they say, so I had this client and blah, 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 blah. And this happened and this happened. And then I, even though I know they've heard me say it at least 10 times, it hasn't sunken in with them enough for them to be able to know how to navigate particular situations. And what they need is someone to bounce off you know of a someone who knows what they're doing uh, and they can help them navigate the situation and figure out okay what's happening for you right now therapist is you're actually giving in your transference and and I know you well enough and we have a good enough relationship where I know you can handle me saying that and let's let's navigate that um, you know I just had a, a supervisee call me yesterday and although she's heard me say you know one of the things she said that um it uh, she said well i'm thinking i need to establish more structure in my in my therapy session and and i know because she's you know been with me for many months that she's heard me say at least once that whenever you as a therapist are thinking about structure with a client it's because you have run into a relationship rupture with your client and you are grasping for straws in an untherapeutic way because you feel like you're out of control and you want to, you want to, you want to wrest control out of the client's hands and that's a power struggle and that's something you don't want to get into. Um, What's really happening is that the therapist or the client is threatened somehow and you need to attend to those emotions. Um, She's heard me say that before, but in the moment and afterwards, she's so in the midst of all her counter transference that she can't see through she can't see the uh, the trees through the woods or the woods through the trees. What's the saying? The forest
1: through the trees.
0: And the, the woods through the trees? I think it's the, the forest, forest through the trees. trees.
1: Yeah, I think so. Anyway. <laughs>
0: okay. It's kind of a weird statement, but anyway, I, I think, you know, it, it does sort of illustrate. It. Um, And so, when she, but when she talks with me about it, I see it and I, in my head, I'm like, I know we've talked about this, but I also know people well enough to know that that's just the foundation now becomes the actual work. And so, you know, we worked through that. We had to talk about it for a long time and, you know, she had to um, say, well, you know, Kirk, I don't understand. Shouldn't I have power in my session? I'm like, yeah, you should. But your impulse to establish power is actually um, you're, you're just trying to make yourself feel good. It's a shortcut, but it's not actually going to help you or the client for you to have a power struggle with this client. What you need to do is, recognize that in this client, this client is very afraid and what's getting in the way of your ability to see that your client is afraid and, and your client is, um, being controlling with you because you've, you've inadvertently made your client feel afraid. So let's attend to that fear in your client and your client will stop trying to establish control. Plus you don't always need to be in control as a therapist. It's not, it's not necessary for treatment. Anyway, so I apologize to you for not having a, a more robust training or you know, observation or supervision or consultation system. Um, do you accept my apology, Liz?
1: I accept it. Thank you.
0: The other thing I'll say is that, uh, I, and I think we went over this over email, if I'm not mistaken, or I went over an identical situation with, with another listener, uh, in terms of meeting with her. I'm glad your psychologist actually... Uh, eventually came to the conclusion that it's probably not a good idea to do that. I get, I know I've actually received this question a lot, or I've received um, stories from listeners telling me about situations like this. It's a very common thing that I, at least I get emails about, where someone will have experienced some bad experience with a past therapist. They'll find a new therapist, and a lot of the new therapy is about the traumas of the past therapist. And uh, and you might, and it seems ridiculous as a client. It's like, so how long am I going to be processing these fucking feelings that I, that I had from this person who was supposed to be helping me? Well, to, uh, and again, I'm not your therapist and I don't know your situation, but people that I've worked with before and you kind of fit the bill for this is that you're, you, you are absolutely processing your past therapist, but you're also processing your mom. And you're not necessarily talking about your mom. Maybe you are talking about it with your mom, or psychologist, but the feelings that were triggered in you from your past therapist are legitimate. They're real. Uh, you know, anyone would feel those feelings. But it's exacerbated this um, past trauma that you had with your mom. And so as you talk about these feelings about your past therapist, you're also healing wounds that came prior to your therapist. You're healing the wounds from your therapist. You're also healing the wounds, uh, from your mother. Do you think that's true? I don't want to be. Oh yeah.
1: Yeah. I think it's true. I totally agree.
0: So there's nothing wrong with, for the next 15 years with your neck, with your current therapist talking about your past therapist. So it's not, it's not a waste of time. It's not an indication that some sort of tragedy happened. It's just a, a good material to get corrective experiences with this new mother who has better boundaries. Um so uh so in that process it's normal for people in your shoes to have this impulse of like I want to meet with this person. I want to meet with this therapist and I and my you know new therapist please broker a meeting between me and my past therapist because I I have some things I got to work out. Well it that's sort of based on a fantasy that things are going to go well. That you know let's just you know hypothesize that or you know uh, you know bring up a situation imaginary where it's the three of you in a in a therapy office um i'm guessing you might want to say like this happened to me and i don't like that this happened and i don't like that this happened and then the therapist you know your past therapist can either be defensive about it which isn't going to be very helpful to you it could it could further the hurt Um, Or the therapist is apologetic, which I guess would be nice. Um, And the fantasy also is that your therapist will attack your past therapist, you know, will be like chastising, you know, in in some professional way. Like, I agree with my client that what you did was wrong and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, professionally speaking, there's a lot of complications to that. Um, and it's not guaranteed to go well. And even if it did go, you know, according to sort of best case scenario, you as a client could walk away in a weird way, even more damaged. Um, and this fantasy that a meeting like that is going to somehow put things to rest is not likely, particularly because it, half of the material here is your mom, which um, you know isn 't going to go those wounds aren 't going to go away just from a meeting with your past therapist either so i i it you know might it go well for you maybe um, but there's so many risks to it that usually yeah. when people ask me about that I, I just say like um, keep processing, I get the impulse um, it 's a tragedy that you have to continue talking about this um, i you know i I get the conclusion that you 'd have some sort of Closure from this, but you know usually people don't, and so you know just keep processing the feelings and, and 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 grieving the loss you know what you're going through is is just a massive loss i mean, even if in your mind you're thinking good riddance, there's another part of your heart that I think you you might have even said this that you just miss her, you know you just miss that that level of warmth and attention and and involvement right
1: oh yeah it was it was very. Uh, extreme, it's finally getting better now. I mean, I think I'm just seeing things more clearly for what they are, you know, and what happened. Um, and I don't feel that way. But for for years, I felt that way. Um, it was, yeah, it was like this grief. And I had so many things to grieve about from that time.
0: Right. And so I get emails from people, uh, and you're not saying this, uh, but I get emails from people saying like, you know, what do I do about that? How do I, how do I get over it? And what I always say is, there is no getting over it. You had tremendous, horrible, tragic losses in your life, and it's painful. And if it's not painful, then you're not a human being, or you're, or you're in denial. Like the fact that you're sad, and you miss this person, and you have complicated feelings about this person, indicates that one, you're a human being, and two, that you actually are healthy enough to acknowledge that you have those feelings. So. Thank you lucky stars that you actually have the ability to recognize that there are people who don't don't have that ability based on their own traumas and the feelings get amplified and directed in really destructive self destructive ways and in destructive ways to other people too so just accept your fate that all of us are grieving something all of us are in pain about something all of us have things we'd rather forget <laughs> and move on about all of us have that and uh, and, you know, this is, and the fact that you think that you could get over it is just a product of you being a part of our culture that falsely believes that one should move on and not dwell on the past when um, it's just not possible to, to move on. Um, so, so, and you've been at therapy a long time and, and, and it's helping. You've grieved the feelings and, and it is starting to dissipate. I suspect it'll never fully dissipate, but. Uh, but it has gotten better and, and it will get better. Do you trust that?
1: I trust that since it's starting to get better. Could it could it be yeah. argued, Kirk, that the people who people like me who need therapy for the therapy, you had mentioned that point that I'm also through this unfortunate experience, at least I'm able to sort of process things that they have happened with my mom. Could that at least be sort of a silver lining to this or or not in every case? Um, that it, what, you know, what so
0: what silver that, lining?
1: That, that that this that this therapist this bad therapist experience kind of stands in it's like a more recent reliving of a past trauma Um yeah. so sort of fresher on my mind so a silver lining of this unfortunate relationship happening is uh, <laughs> as difficult as it's been I can sort of use it as a a stand in for um, you know just remember really accessing what happened a long time ago and working on that. Um, and that maybe that's one sort of optimistic way of looking at having to go to therapy because of a therapist, even though it seems like such a waste of time.
0: Yeah. I don't think that's particularly quote unquote optimistic way of looking. I just, I that's accurate um, that, you know, I said as much um, in terms of uh, the, the experience presented a a situation for you to talk about in, in very explicit ways and process feelings that did have to do with your past therapist, but also to do with your mom. Uh, Do you feel comfortable enough in your therapy to discuss your complicated feelings about your mom with your therapist?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. i talked about that a lot.
0: Okay. Uh, And about the complications you went through as a child?
1: Yes. Yep
0: yeah so uh, that's good too. I'm glad I'm glad you have that, because um, you deserve that as well. Yeah, well, so what's the final word here, Liz? Uh,
1: just that it's it's also complicated, but I mean, I think it was helpful to talk about how these things happen and why. It's just helpful to talk about it, so I appreciate it and I appreciate having your feedback and insight, and I appreciate knowing that I'm not alone in having this kind of just, it's a very, when you're in it alone, um, it's hard to understand what happened. You know, it helps me to talk to other people about what happened. I wasn't, for a long time, I wasn't even really able to articulate it.
0: Yeah. You're not alone. I can't tell you how many emails I've gotten with nearly identical stories. Like just one that pops into my head uh, that I've talked about on the podcast before is there was a, a woman who was seeing a client and they had a very warm relationship and the uh, client would sometimes reach out to her therapist over text and in emergencies they would actually even talk on the phone and the client moved out of town and uh, couldn't see the therapist anymore and the therapist uh, said well you know feel free to let me know how you're doing feel free to text me or call me you know we can talk on the phone and the and the client was very grateful for that. was like, oh, I'm so glad that I I'm not, I don't have to say goodbye to my therapist. Um, so this is all motivated by, again, that, that why in the road of the therapist is like, well, I, I want to be there for my client. Um, but the dilemma is if I have weird boundaries around this, bad things could happen. Plus, it's not really the standard of care to just be Available in this amorphous way to a client um, because you could, you risk disappointing your clients if you're not available or you have to eventually draw a boundary. So the client moves away and uh, at some point soon after, Hat is at an antique store and has some sort of panic attack and texts her, her therapist. And her therapist says, Oh, you know, and her therapist called her right back. And her therapist walks her through this panic attack and was really helpful and very therapeutic. And the client was very grateful for that and very helped. Very, It was wonderful care. Uh, A month later, the client has some other issue and texts the therapist. And I can't remember all the details, but something along the lines of the therapist didn't reply and then at a later date said something like um, you you need to find your own therapist or something like that. And it felt very abrupt and it it wasn't, there was no apology. There was no, you know, when they were terminating the first time, it wasn't like the therapist said I will be available to you for a month, but you need to find it on your own therapist. And once you find your own therapist or after a month's time, whichever comes first, I'm not going to be available to you after that. There was no guideline. There was no expectation. It was just sprung on the client, probably in a very haphazard manner by the therapist. The therapist just decided, uh, "I need to pull back," and just did it without uh, having any kind of conversation with the client and any sort of prep for that. And the client felt abandoned and harmed and hurt, and it it completely rewrote the entire history she had with that therapist. You know, she she had walked away at that first termination with a wonderful memory of this past therapist, but now that the therapist had really bad boundaries post-termination, the client now looks back on this relationship and goes like, well, was any of that real? Or what was going on there? And it's this tragedy of, if you just followed the standard of care, although there would have been sadness and although the client might even kind of resent you for um, uh, not having a little bit of, of open boundaries, the client can say, "Well, I mean, it's a professional relationship, and and my therapist doesn't really have a choice." I mean, that's what I always tell my supervisees to say, which is true. Which is that, uh, you know, if a client ever says, "Can I, you know, it's okay, we're terminating, but can I, can I call you after termination? Can I, can I email you?" I always tell supervisees to uh, deny that, but also to figure out a way to talk about it. And one of the things you can say is a. Uh, terminate when you're terminating as a therapist is look, it's unethical for me to continue a relationship with you for a lot of reasons, which I could explain to you, but I could actually lose my license if I allow you to text me or call me after termination. And so um although I do think it's in your best interest and I and I hope that you do find another therapist, um, yeah, I have an impulse to to contact you after termination because I care about you and I'm gonna be thinking about you. But it's considered outside the standard of care. Plus my supervisor would never allow me to do that. And and I'm really sorry. Um, just say that, just say, you know, just, just say, and then the, and then the client walks away going, my therapist didn't have a choice and it's not personal that my therapist isn't there for me because it isn't personal. It's not a, it's not a personal thing when a therapist just follows the policy and the standard of care. It's not a personal thing when the, when the therapist decides to draw a boundary whereas when you have a therapist that has already shown in their actions that they're willing to cross all those boundaries when they do establish a boundary it's hard not to consider that a personal attack of like you you've proven to me that you're willing to cross all the other boundaries why are you why are you firming up your boundaries now it it must be personal and oftentimes it is oftentimes it's because the therapist is like um upset at the client for being too clingy or to, or bothering them in their off hours or something, you know, is this ringing true for your particular oh, situation? Oh, it feels right?
1: so, that feels so much like, you know, that really feels like it. what happened. Yeah. It felt, it, it felt fairly abrupt and um, it did feel like I got the sense that she realized she's like, Whoa, I got in way too deep with this one. I need to back out. <laughs> that's how it, that's, yeah, I I could sense that. I, and I sense that that's what happened, and um, it's just like you just—I just feel like you can't offer so much and then take it away.
0: Because it—it did it feel personal? Did it feel oh, like?
1: A, yeah, it felt personal.
0: Like it wasn't a policy of hers. She wasn't following some sort of broader, oh, higher no. policy. It didn't feel it like, like a
1: policy, and it wasn't—it wasn't communicated that way. It wasn't it was barely communicated at all, you know. Right. It felt very personal, especially with all the warmth and all the, like all the other, like you said, all the boundaries that have been crossed before. Why can't you just keep crossing them? Uh, it's a slippery slope, I think.
0: Well, I think we hit the nail on the head there at the end uh, in terms of what every therapist out there needs to know, which is that if you, if you start crossing boundaries, when you have to actually firm up those boundaries, which is inevitable, the client is likely to see it as a as a personal attack which it kind of is whereas if you follow the standard of care which can you can follow the standard of care and be extremely warm and be extremely there and be extremely helpful and be extremely empathetic and have a very secure attachment um, you know if you follow the standard of care then you don't you don't run the risk of Um, having to draw that boundary and having it be interpreted accurately to some extent as a personal attack, which I don't think any, I don't think your past therapist wanted that to happen. You know, I don't think she woke up in the morning and said, you know, I want, I want Liz to feel like I personally attacked her, (laughs) you know?
1: Right. Right. I'm sure Um, not. Yeah.
0: It's just neglect and bad training or something. Yeah. And yeah, like I said, I apologize that that happened to you. Well, thanks for joining us on this journey. Liz, uh, I had no idea we'd talk about it for two and a half hours, but we did.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Kirk.
0: And uh, please take care of yourself out there. And, Liz, why should people take care of themselves?
1: Because they deserve it.